Chapter 11 of In the Heart of Africa by Samuel White Baker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 The Bull Elephant. Having explored the Setite into the gorge of the mountain chain of Abyssinia, we turned due south from our camp at Deladilla and at a distance of twelve miles reached the river Royan. Our course now was directed up this stream and at the junction of the Hormai-Gubba, or Habak River, some of my Arabs, observing fresh tracks of horses on the sand, went in search of the Agagirs of Tahir Sharif's party, whom they had expected to meet at this point. Soon after, they returned with the Agagirs, whose camp was but a quarter of a mile distant. I agreed to have a hunt for elephants the next day with Tahir Sharif, and before the following sunrise we had started up the course of the Royan for a favorite resort of elephants. We had ridden about thirty miles and were beginning to despair when suddenly we turned a sharp angle in the water course and Tahir Sharif, who was leading, immediately reined in his horse and backed him toward the party. I followed his example and we were at once concealed by the sharp bend of the river. He now whispered that a bull elephant was drinking from a hole it had scooped in the sand not far around the corner. Without the slightest confusion, the hunters at once fell quietly into their respective places, Tahir Sharif leading, while I followed closely in the line with my Tokruris bringing up the rear. We were a party of seven horses. Upon turning the corner, we at once perceived the elephant that was still drinking. It was a fine bull. The enormous ears were thrown forward as the head was lowered in the act of drawing up the water through the trunk. These shaded the eyes, and with a wind favorable, we advanced noiselessly upon the sand to within twenty yards before we were perceived. The elephant then threw up his head, and with the ears flapping forward, it raised its trunk for an instant, and then slowly but easily ascended the steep bank and retreated. The Agagirs now halted for about a minute to confer together, and then followed in their original order up the crumbled bank. We were now on most unfavorable ground. The fire that had cleared the country we had hitherto traversed had been stopped by the bed of the torrent. We were thus plunged at once into withered grass above our heads, unless we stood in the stirrups. The ground was strewn with fragments of rock, and altogether it was ill-adapted for riding. However, Tahir Sharif broke into a trot, followed by the entire party as the elephant was not in sight. We ascended a hill, and when near the summit, we perceived the elephant about eighty yards ahead. It was looking behind during its retreat by swinging its huge head from side to side, and upon seeing us approach, it turned suddenly around and halted. "'Be ready and take care of the rocks,' said Tahir Sharif as I rode forward by his side. Hardly had he uttered these words of caution when the bull gave a vicious jerk with its head, and with a shrill scream charged down upon us with the greatest fury. Away we all went, helter-skelter through the dry grass, which whistled in my ears over the hidden rocks at full gallop, with the elephant tearing after us for about a hundred and eighty yards at a tremendous pace. Teetle was a sure-footed horse, and being unshod, he never slipped upon the stones. Thus, as we all scattered in different directions, the elephant became confused and relinquished the chase. 
it had been very near me at one time and in such ground i was not sorry when it gave up the hunt we now quickly united and again followed the elephant that had once more retreated advancing at a canter we shortly came in view upon seeing the horses the bull deliberately entered a stronghold composed of rocky and uneven ground in the clefts of which thinly grew a few leafless trees of the thickness of a man's leg it then turned boldly toward us and stood determinedly at bay now came the tug-of-war tahir sharif came close to me and said you had better shoot the elephant as we shall have great difficulty in this rocky ground this i declined as i wished the fight ended as it had been commenced with a sword and i proposed that he should endeavor to drive the animal to more favorable ground never mind replied tahir inshallah please god he shall not beat us he now advised me to keep as close to him as possible and to look sharp for a charge the elephant stood facing us like a statue it did not move a muscle beyond a quick and restless action of the eyes that were watching all sides tahir sharif and his youngest brother ibrahim now separated and each took opposite sides of the elephant and then joined each other about twenty yards behind it i accompanied them until tahir advised me to keep about the same distance upon the left flank my tokruris kept apart from the scene as they were not required in front of the elephant were two agagirs one of whom was a renowned rotor sharif with a withered arm all being ready for action rotor now rode slowly toward the head of the cunning old bull who was quietly awaiting an opportunity to make certain of someone who might give him a good chance rotor sharif rode a bay mare that having been thoroughly trained to these encounters was perfect at her work slowly and coolly she advanced toward her wary antagonist until within about eight or nine yards of the elephant's head the creature never moved and the missing scene was beautiful not a word was spoken and we kept our places amid utter stillness which was at length broken by a snort from the mare who gazed intently at the elephant as though watching for the moment of attack one more pace forward and rotor sat coolly upon his mare with his eyes fixed upon those of the elephant for an instant i saw the white of the eye nearest to me look out rotor he's coming i exclaimed with a shrill scream the elephant dashed upon him like an avalanche round went the mare as though upon a pivot and away over rocks and stones flying like a gazelle with a monkey-like form of little rotor sharif leaning forward looking over his left shoulder as the elephant rushed after him for a moment i thought he must be caught had the mare stumbled all were lost but she gained in the race after a few quick bounding strides and rotor still looking behind him kept his distance so close to the elephant that its outstretched trunk was within a few feet of the mare's tail tahir sharif and his brother ibrahim swept down like falcons in the rear in full speed they dexterously avoided the trees until they arrived upon open ground when they dashed up close behind the hindquarters of the furious elephant which maddened with the excitement heeded nothing but rotor and his mare that were almost within its grasp when close to the tail of the elephant tahir sharif's sword flashed from its sheath as grasping his trusty blade he leaped nimbly to the ground while ibrahim caught the reins of his horse two or three bounds on foot with the sword clutched in both hands and he was close behind the elephant 
a bright glance shone like lightning as the sun struck upon the descending steel this was followed by a dull crack as a sword cut through the skin and sinews and settled deep in the bone about twelve inches above the foot at the next stride the elephant halted dead short in the midst of its tremendous charge Tahir had jumped quickly on one side and had vaulted into the saddle with his naked sword in hand at the same moment Roder, who had led the chase, turned sharp around and again faced the elephant as before. Stooping quickly from the saddle, he picked up from the ground a handful of dirt which he threw in the face of the vicious-looking animal that once more attempted to rush upon him. It was impossible. The foot was dislocated and turned up in front like an old shoe. In an instant, Tyre was once more on foot, and the sharp sword slashed the remaining leg." the great bull-elephant could not move. The first cut with the sword had utterly disabled it. The second was its death-blow. The arteries of the leg were divided, and the blood spouted in jets from the wounds. I wished to terminate its misery by a bullet behind the ear, but Tahir Sharif begged me not to fire, as the elephant would quickly bleed to death without pain, and an unnecessary shot might attract the boss, who would steal the flesh and ivory during our absence. We were obliged to return immediately to our far distant camp, and the hunters resolved to accompany their camels to the spot on the following day. We turned our horses' heads and rode directly towards home, which we did not reach until nearly midnight, having ridden upward of sixty miles during the day. The hunting of Tahir Sharif and his brothers was superlatively beautiful. With an immense amount of dash, there was a cool, sportsmanlike manner in their mode of attack that far excelled the impetuous and reckless onset of Abu Dhul. It was difficult to decide which to admire more, the coolness and courage of him who led the elephant, or the extraordinary skill and activity of the agar who dealt the fatal blow. After hunting and exploring for some days in this neighborhood, I determined to follow the bed of the Royan to its junction with the Setite. We started at daybreak, and, after a long march along the sandy bed, hemmed in by high banks or by precipitous cliffs of sandstone, we arrived at the junction. Having explored the entire country and enjoyed myself thoroughly, I was now determined to pay our promised visit to McNimmer. Since our departure from the Egyptian territory, his country had been invaded by a large force, according to orders sent from the Governor-General of the Sudan. McNimmer usually retreated to the mountains, but my Gama and a number of his villages were utterly destroyed by the Egyptians. He would, under these circumstances, be doubly suspicious of strangers. We were fortunate, however, in unexpectedly meeting a party of McNimmer's followers on a foray, who consented to guide us to his encampment. Accordingly, on March 20th, we found ourselves in a rich and park-like valley occupied by his people, and the day following was spent in receiving visits from the headman. Messengers soon after arrived from McNimmer, inviting us to pay him a visit at his residence. As we were conversing with McNimmer's messengers through the medium of Tahir Nur, who knew their language, our attention was attracted by the arrival of a tremendous swell, who, at a distance, I thought must be McNimmer himself. A snow-white mule carried an equally snow-white person, 
whose tight white pantaloons looked as though he had forgotten his trousers and had mounted in his drawers he carried a large umbrella to shade his complexion a pair of handsome silver-mounted pistols were arranged upon his saddle and a silver-hilted curved sword of peculiar abyssinian form hung by his side this grand personage was followed by an attendant also mounted upon a mule while several men on foot accompanied them one of whom carried his lance and shield upon near approach he immediately dismounted and advanced toward us bowing in a most foppish manner while his attendant followed him on foot with an enormous violin which he immediately handed to him this fiddle was very peculiar in shape being a square with an exceedingly long neck extending from one corner upon this was stretched a solitary string and the bow was very short and much bent this was an abyssinian paganini he was a professional minstrel of the highest grade who had been sent by mcnimmer to welcome us on our arrival these musicians are very similar to the minstrels of ancient times they attend at public rejoicings and at births deaths and marriages of great personages upon which occasions they extemporize their songs according to circumstances my hunting in the Basque country formed his theme and for at least an hour he sang of my deeds in an extremely loud and disagreeable voice while he accompanied himself upon his fiddle which he held downward like a violoncello during the whole of a song he continued in movement marching with a sliding step to the front and gliding to the right and left in a matter that though intended to be graceful was extremely comic the subject of this minstrelry was explained to me by tahir nur who listened eagerly to the words which he translated with evident satisfaction of course like all minstrels he was an absurd flatterer and having gathered a few facts for his theme he wandered slightly from the truth in his poetical description of my deeds he sang of me as though i had been richard coeur de lyon and recounted before an admiring strong of listeners how i had wandered with a young wife from my own distant country to fight the terrible boss how i had slain them in single combat and how elephants and lions were struck down like lambs and kids by my hands that during my absence in the hunt my wife had been carried off by the boz that i had upon my return to my pillaged camp galloped off in chase and overtaking the enemy hundreds had fallen by my rifle and sword and i had liberated and recovered the lady who had now arrived safe with her lord in the country of the great mcnimmer etc etc this was all very pretty no doubt and as true as most poetical and musical descriptions but i felt certain that there must be something to pay for this flattering entertainment if you were considered to be a great man a present is invariably expected in proportion to your importance i suggested to tahir nur that i must give him a couple of dollars what said tahir nur a couple of dollars impossible a musician of his standing is accustomed to receive thirty and forty dollars from great people for so beautiful and honorable a song well, this was somewhat startling i began to reflect upon the price of a box at her majesty's theatre in london but there i was not the hero of the opera 
this minstrel combined the whole affair in a most simple manner he was verdi costa and orchestra all in one he was a thorough macaulay as historian therefore i had to pay the composer as well as the fiddler i compromised the matter and gave him a few dollars as i understood that he was mcnimmer's private minstrel but i never parted with my dear maria teresa the austrian dollar that is the only large current coin in that country with so much regret as upon that occasion and i begged him not to incommode himself by paying us another visit or should he be obliged to do so i trusted he would not think it necessary to bring his violin the minstrel retired in the same order that he had arrived and i watched his retreating figure with unpleasant reflections that were suggested by doubts as to whether i had paid him too little or too much tahir nur thought that he was underpaid my own opinion was that i had brought a curse upon myself equal to a succession of london organ grinders as i fully expected that other minstrels upon hearing of the austrian dollars would pay us a visit and sing of my great deeds in the afternoon we were sitting beneath the shade of our tamarind tree when we thought we could perceive our musical friend returning as he drew near we were convinced that it was the identical minstrel who had most probably been sent with a message from mcnimmer there he was in snow-white raiment on the snow-white mule with a mounted attendant and the violin as before he dismounted upon arrival opposite the camp and approached with his usual foppish bow but we looked on in astonishment it was not our paganini it was another minstrel he was determined to sing an ode in our praise i felt that this was an indirect appeal to maria theresa and i once declared against music i begged him not to sing my wife had a headache i disliked the fiddle could he play anything else instead and i expressed a variety of polite excuses but to no purpose he insisted upon singing if i disliked the fiddle he would sing without an accompaniment but he could not think of insulting so great a man as myself by returning without an ode to commemorate our arrival i was determined that he should not sing he was determined that he would therefore i desired him to leave my camp this he agreed to do provided i would allow him to cross the stream and sing to my toked ruries in my praise beneath a neighboring tree about fifty yards distant he remounted his mule with his violin to ford the muddy stream and descended the steep bank followed by his attendant on foot who drove the unwilling mule upon arrival at the brink of the dirty brook that was about three feet deep the mule positively refused to enter the water and stood firm with its four feet sunk deep in the mud the attendant attempted to push it on behind and at the same time gave it a sharp blow with his sheathed sword this changed the scene to an opera comique in one instant the mule gave so vigorous and unexpected a kick into the bowels of the attendant that he fell upon his back heels uppermost while at the same moment the minstrel in his snow-white garments was precipitated head foremost into the muddy brook and for the moment disappearing the violin alone could be seen floating on the surface a second later a wretched-looking object covered with slime and filth emerged from the slough 
This was Paganini II, who, after securing his fiddle that had stranded on a mudbank, scrambled up the steep slope amid the roars of laughter from my people and of ourselves, while the perverse mule, having turned harmony into discord, kicked up its heels and galloped off, braying an ode in praise of liberty as the lay of the last minstrel. The discomfited fiddler was wiped down by my tokruris, who occasionally burst into renewed fits of laughter during the operation. The mule was caught, and the minstrel remounted and returned home completely out of tune. On the following morning at sunrise, I mounted my horse, and, accompanied by Tahir Nur and Bachit, I rode to pay my respects to Mechnimer. Our route lay parallel to the stream, and after a ride of about two miles through a fine park-like country, bounded by the Abyssinian Alps about fifteen miles distant, I observed a crowd of people around a large tamarind tree, near which were standing a number of horses, mules, and dromedaries. This was the spot upon which I was to meet Mechnimer. Upon my approach, the crowd opened, and, having dismounted, I was introduced by Tahir Nur to the great chief. He was a man of about fifty and exceedingly dirty in appearance. He sat upon an angerep, surrounded by his people. Lying on either side upon his seat were two brace of pistols, and within a few yards stood his horse ready saddled. He was prepared for fight or flight, as were also his ruffianly-looking followers, who were composed of Abyssinians and Jalines. After a long and satisfactory conversation, I retired. Immediately on my arrival at camp, I dispatched Wat Gamma with a pair of beautiful double-barrel pistols, which I begged Mech Nimmer to accept. On March 27th, we said goodbye and started for the Bar Salam. The next few days we spent in exploring the Salam and Angrab rivers. They are interesting examples of the destructive effect of water that has during the course of ages cut through and hollowed out in the solid rock a succession of the most horrible precipices and caverns into which the maddened torrents rushing from the lofty chain of mountains boil along until they meet the Atbara and assist to flood the Nile. No one could explore these tremendous torrents, the Setite, Royan, Angrab, Salam, and Atbara, without at once comprehending their effect upon the waters of the Nile. The magnificent chain of mountains from which they flow is not a simple line of abrupt sides, but the precipitous slopes are walls of this vast plateau that receives a prodigious rainfall in June, July, August, and until the middle of September, the entire drainage of which is carried away by the above-named channels to inundate Lower Egypt. I thoroughly explored the beautiful country of the Salam and the Angrab, and on the 14th of April we pushed on for Galabat, the frontier market town of Abyssinia. We arrived at our old friend, the Atbara River, at the sharp angle as it issues from the mountains. At this place, it was in its infancy— the noble Atbara, whose course we had tracked for hundreds of weary miles, and whose tributaries we had so carefully examined, was here a second-class mountain torrent, about equal to the Royan, and not to be named in comparison with the Salam or Angrab. The power of the Atbara depended entirely upon the western drainage of the Abyssinian Alps. Of itself, it was insignificant until aided by the great arteries of the mountain chain. 
the junction of the salam at once changed its character and the Settite or Takazi completed its importance as the great river of Abyssinia that has washed down the fertile soil of those regions to create the delta of Lower Egypt, and to perpetuate the delta by annual deposits that are now forming a new Egypt beneath the waters of the Mediterranean. We had seen the Atbara, a bed of glaring sand, a mere continuation of the burning desert that surrounded its course, fringed by a belt of withered trees like a monument sacred to the memory of a dead river we had seen the sudden rush of waters when in the still night the mysterious stream had invaded the dry bed and swept all before it like an awakened giant we knew that at that moment the rains were falling in abyssinia although the sky above us was without a cloud we had subsequently witnessed that tremendous rainfall and seen the Atbara at its grandest flood. We had traced each river and crossed each tiny stream that fed the mighty Atbara from the mountain chain, and we now, after our long journey, forded the Atbara in its infancy hardly knee-deep over its rocky bed of about sixty yards' width, and we camped in the little village of Togani on the rising ground on the opposite side. It was evening, and we sat upon an anger up among the lovely hills that surrounded us, and looked down upon the Atbara for the last time, as the sun sank behind the rugged mountains of Ras el Fiel, the elephant's head. Once more I thought of that wonderful river Nile that could flow forever through the exhausting deserts of sand, while the Atbara, during the summer months, shrank to a dry skeleton, although the powerful affluence, the Salam and the Setite, never ceased to flow. Every drop of their water was evaporated by the air and absorbed by the desert sand in the bed of the Atbara, two hundred miles above its junction with the Nile. The Atbara exploration was completed, and I looked forward to the fresh enterprise of exploring new rivers and lower latitudes that should unravel the mystery of the Nile. End of chapter 11